Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy, and we match today, I guess. Yes, we do. Well, um, the first order of business, therefore, is to explain our attire. Um, <laughs> for those of you that, are, that uh, can't see the Instagram clip that I'm going to put up, but you should check out our Instagram clips. Um, the Amer- America's Constitution Instagram account has clips pretty much every week. And this time it reveals that Yale has defeated Harvard 23-18 to 18 at the Yale Bowl on Saturday, uh, November 18th. And this meant that Yale has won the Ivy League football championship, which it also won last year. And the last time that that happened, that Yale won twice in a row, was, I believe, 1980 or 81, which uh, could, would, could ring a bell for, for you, Akil. Yes. Now, the audience should know that this was Andy's idea. Um, he's really into this. One of us came all the way up from uh, central New Jersey to watch this silly game. The other one of us couldn't even be bothered to you know, uh, drive across town to see it. And Andy met a bunch of people who actually talked about the podcast. So that, I'm more interested in that. Andy says that Yale won the championship. Of course, we share it this year with, and I say we, um, with Dartmouth and, and Harvard. So congratulations to, to them too. But my kids, um, a couple of them are actually at Yale. And Vineeth and I, uh, Andy, often uh, joke about how the dogs just see us as like drumsticks on legs. You know, they, they see us and they think food, food, food. Our kids now see us as, you know, free football tickets on legs because basically, you know, every year I, I, I basically never go and they say, Dad, you know, can do you have an extra ticket uh, so that we can give it to our friends or, or whatever? So, so truthfully, I was not there. Oh, but Andy was there. And Andy, you met some Yale people who recognized your voice and mentioned the podcast. No, it's true. There was a whole slew of people. I'm not going to, I didn't ask them for permission to use their names, so I'm not going to go through every one of them. But uh, but at least one I'll mention that was notable, who's the who listens to America's Constitution, and that's the uh, the president of Yale. Peter Salovey has told me that he he listens to America's Constitution, so that was great. And there were many other notables um, who did. And, and oh, you I could drop actually, at least one more name. Come on, Andy. Well, I was speaking to the governor of Connecticut. There you um, go. And so there you go. And and uh, yeah, so there were there were many others, and many. But, but, but you have to drop me. his name. Politicians like it. Yes, um, Lamont, actually, the governor you. of Connecticut. Thank all oh. all of which, Andy. Truthfully, because I don't go to the game, but but you go in part, not just for the game, but to meet people, and I probably should that. But we are very grateful for our audience, and candidly, we brag about our audience because we think you all are the most impressive podcast audience out there, the most sophisticated, because we're trying to give you actually a pretty serious, in-depth um, analysis, which you don't get uh, you know, on all other podcasts. And, and so I did not know that the governor of Connecticut listened to the, has at least listened to one episode. I, I didn't know that my boss and friend Peter Salovey has listened to this episode. And Andy, there were many, many others. You were at the Slifka Center, for example, and, and, and some people apparently just recognized you because of your voice at the Slifka Center for, Ju- for, for Jewish life at Yale. So all of which made me very, very happy. No, it's true. So thank you, audience, for, for as always, for, for tuning in. And by the way, for the great questions and comments that we get um, through the website, again, for those of you that listen to the podcast uh, 
through, let's say, a podcast service like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you should know that at akilamar.com slash podcast hyphen two, which is, or you can just go to akilamar.com and it's obvious where America's Constitution is there, there's an opportunity to leave comments or questions. Um, and one other thing before we get to the substance here, uh, just to mention that this episode is also accredited for continuing legal education credit, as are all our episodes going forward, thanks to the New Jersey Bar Association, by going to podcast.njsba.com and inputting the code, which I will provide you with later in this episode, you'll be able to obtain your CLE credit if you're a lawyer or a judge in virtually any state in the union. but particularly in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York, where it's particularly easy um, due to kind of a direct accreditation through them as opposed to reciprocity. So more on that later. Okay, so what happened this week other than the most important thing, which was Yale winning the Ivy League title by beating Harvard? Um, Sharing the Ivy League title. No, that's true. But okay. beating Harvard is really the, okay. Uh, okay. the, the, the okay. key point there. We, we um, ha- sorry we, we, to you, we, Harvard we, alumni, for we, rubbing we, it in. Yes, yes, yes. Andy, we have a lot of Harvard affiliates who listen to the episode, and the audience should know that I, in particular, are very grateful to you all, even though Andy is cavelling and bragging just a bit. We will stop now, Andy. Okay, enough yes. about the game. Okay. Yes. But we did beat Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what happened? So that was good. So what happened this week that was bad? Well, in uh, in Colorado, there was a hearing and uh, on questions regarding the Fourteenth Amendment, Section Three, and the judge there, District Court Judge Judge Wallace, State District um, Court, yeah, State District Court, offered her uh, opinion on the matter, and. She had two rulings that were particularly relevant, I think, for for our interest and the country's interest. One was that she found that uh, Donald Trump had engaged in insurrection in his behaviors on uh, January 6th. Um, And the other thing that she found was he couldn't be kept off the ballot, in her view, uh, in Colorado because... She felt that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, did not apply to him as he was not an officer of the United States in the sense that was meant in that section. Your comments. Most important, we're going to have at least one episode on this. It's not this week's episode. In that episode, we will have at least one special guest, maybe several. And by special guest, I mean really special people who know what they're talking about. So stay tuned audience. I want to make a point about litigation and judicial hierarchy. Trial judges are particularly important in deciding factual matters, and their findings of fact are entitled to special weight on appellate review. The question of whether Donald Trump engaged in and that's a word, engage, an insurrection or gave it aid and comfort or abetted it in some way. Those are pure questions of fact or at least mixed questions of fact and law. They may depend in part on certain interpretations of words like insurrection and engage, aid, comfort, but also facts of the matter, what he did on January 4th and 5th and 6th and and maybe even thereafter. Those rulings by a trial judge, whether state or federal, the the person who heard 
the witnesses and assessed physical evidence and, and other things that were introduced to trial, those are entitled to wait on appeal. Um, in this case, I predict um, will be appealed. The Secretary of State has said as much to higher courts and ultimately to the Supreme Court of Colorado. So those factual findings, which are against Trump, will carry weight. And the audience will remember that I took no strong position on that in our two episodes with the great Will Bode and the great Michael Paulson, who have written this very important article on 14th Amendment Section 3. So I, I said, oh, I want to hear and, and, and see more on that. Well, she's actually, the trial judge, given us her assessment after hearing witnesses and sifting the, the evidence. Her ruling that the president is not covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is a question of law. That's not going to be entitled to much weight, really any at all, frankly, um, on appeal. That's a pure question of law that the Colorado Supreme Court justices will have their own opinions on. My own view is that she got that one wrong, pretty badly wrong, frankly. And I would not be surprised at all if she were reversed on that issue by the Colorado Supreme Court. We will see going forward. There'll be more judges involved. Time will tell. Appellate judges who focus more on law. Um, it was slightly odd, frankly, that on that 14th Amendment Section 3 question, she took testimony. Now, she took testimony from a great legal scholar, someone who listens to this podcast regularly and who, to whom we've given shout-outs in the past, my dear friend and former student, Professor Gerard Magliocca. He's out in Indiana, and he is an expert on this. He's written a whole book on John Bingham, the lead author of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, and, and Gerard has very strong views about this, that the president is covered. I'm with him. But it's a little odd to take testimony from a legal scholar in deciding actually a pure question of law. If she could have gotten John Bingham to testify, it would have been relevant. <laughs> he could have talked about his intent. But, uh, uh, I mean, is this, is this kind of a shortcut? To, maybe there isn't time to get amicus briefs or something like that? So you she get could, she could scholarly have put, opinions that way? Or she could or? have put out a call for um, amicus mm -hmm. briefs. But more generally, there are people who have written about this. Um, I actually haven't written about this in great detail, but Bode and Paulson did. And that's actually, I think, that a definitive article. One other person who I think has written very persuasively on this, apart from Gerard, is Professor Mark Graber. His name has been been mentioned before on this podcast. Graeber and Magdaka tend to post on balkanization, our friend Jack Balkan's website. And Jack Balkan, our audience will remember, did come on to talk about um, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment and the debt ceiling and all of that stuff in an earlier episode, a couple of episodes maybe even, with the great Sai Prakash. So our audience should actually read Graeber. Graeber knows this stuff. He's writing a whole book, or maybe he has recently finished a, a book on the 14th Amendment. And Magliocca um, has a lot to, to say, and they've put it in writing. So have Bode and Paulson. There are folks on the other side. Truthfully, I think they have the wrong argument at um, a recent National Lawyers Convention annual meeting, um, the 40th annual uh, National Lawyers Convention of the Federal Society at the Mayflower. There was a special panel on 14th Amendment Section 3 featuring Will Bode on one side and the Michael McConnell, the great Michael McConnell on the other side, former distinguished federal judge, uh, the person for whom Will Bode himself clerked. They're on the same case book together along with Michael Paulson. So it's a, it's a very small world. 
And Michael McConnell at this event, you can see it on YouTube, they disagreed about many things about whether it really was an insurrection and, you know, um, a standard of review, all sorts of things as it's self-executing. Um, but on the Section 3 issue, Michael McConnell, who, remember, was debating Bode, said he thought that this argument that the president uh, was not covered was, quote, this is a direct quote, very silly, unquote. And he predicted that, that judges would, would not actually, in the end, say that the president somehow was not covered. That you, if, you, if you have taken an oath to the Constitution and you betray that oath, somehow you can't be a presidential elector, you can't be a senator, you can't be a representative, you can't be a judge, you can't be a cabinet officer, you can't be a dog catcher, but somehow you can be president of the United States. Oh, that's not a problem. You know, oh, we don't want Jeff Davis to have any of these other positions, Jefferson Davis, you know, but it's perfectly okay if he's president. And also the idea that somehow if you take an oath to support the Constitution as a cabinet officer, as a judge, as a senator, as a representative, oh, then you're covered, uh, and then you betray that oath. Then you're covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, but not if you take an even more solemn and public oath in front of all America to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Oh, that's different than supporting the Constitution. Well, that's very silly too, said Professor, former Judge McConnell. So we will see going forward. But I promise the audience we're going to have another episode on this with some with the real experts who really know what they're talking about. Um, I can't even just say, it will probably be at least some combination of the following. And I've already mentioned their names. Will Bode and Michael Paulson and Gerard Magliocca uh, will reach out. To, uh, I've, uh, I've been in touch with them. We'll reach out to, to, to Mark Graber to see if he's interested. We may have them all on at once. Um, we, uh, we may have them one-on-one or, or two-on-one, but our audience will hear from them and this is not the last word on that question of law. It's going to go up to the Colorado Supreme Court, and I continue to think that the best arguments tend to win, usually in court, especially at the higher levels, and the best argument here is that, of course, the presence is covered. That's not a hard question. Just a, uh, a question. You just mentioned that it will go up to the Colorado Supreme Court. Is this a question of, I mean, it's a is it a question of state law or federal law? I mean, could, would it, could it go to the U.S. Supreme Court or would it stop at the, at the Colorado Supreme Court? Great question. If Trump prevails, the, the U.S. Supreme Court just may not get in, involved at all. They may even wonder if anyone has standing to challenge this or all the rest. But if Trump loses... I believe that he would have a very strong argument that, that he could take an appeal to the United States Supreme Court because he's being intruded upon, and he would say in violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, correctly understood, in legal lingo, he surely has standing to take an appeal if the case goes against him in the Colorado Supreme Court. Contrarywise, if the lower court ruling in his favor is um, affirmed, whether on, the, on Section 3 grounds or on other grounds, it's not altogether clear that anyone else has federal standing in the U.S. Supreme Court to take the appeal because the rules for access to federal courts are sometimes more strict and more limited than the rules of access to state courts. This is one of many, many things 
that are covered in a course called Federal Jurisdiction, which I teach every year. I took a hiatus, but I'm now back in the saddle. I was hired to teach this. The casebook that I use, the Hart and Wexler casebook, is actually co-edited in the newest incarnation by Will Bode. He's quite an expert on this. So in two different areas, Andy, there are possibly different standards for state and federal courts. One we just talked about, standing. And just to repeat, it's sometimes easier to get into state court. They have more liberal rules of case and controversy and who can come to court, who has standing, than do the federal courts across the street. Second, and this is relevant because there was another case that Trump won on closely related issues, actually a, a trio of three cases in Michigan. And in Michigan, the state court actually held that Trump won, but for a different set of reasons, not because he wasn't covered by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, but because the judge declared it was a political question that courts shouldn't get involved in. That's not what the Colorado state judge ruled. Now, there's a nice question of this. This doctrine is called the political question doctrine. It's surely a doctrine for federal courts. There's a nice question whether that doctrine applies equally to state courts because that was a state court judge. I think that state court judge actually, frankly, he cited some scholars that have written about the political question doctrine. If I had been in that judge's shoes, you know, and he didn't take testimony, he actually, you know, read stuff. Then the question is, well, whom do you read and whom do you trust? And on that, frankly, I would trust Will Bode, most of all, because um, he's actually, um, he's the casebook editor of the Hart and Wexler casebook, which is the canonical casebook. And their position is, this is not only for political actors to enforce. It's self-executing, Bode and Paulson have argued, and judges can be involved. And yes, Andy, I think it's not just that it can come, um, that, that can arise in one narrow context. There are issues about the primaries, and there are one set of, of laws about that, and, and who can bring a suit and what the standards are. Then there are going to be a different set of issues about general ballot access. And even after that, my view is the Congress, the day it counts the votes, the January 6th equivalent, that will be yet a third moment of, of actual constitutional decision-making, leapfrogging the days when the electors themselves meet. I'll give you an example of this. And, and if Mike Paulson comes back on the program, which I'm hoping he will, we'll talk about this because I think they've actually modified their position a little bit on this. Suppose, for example, the insurrection only occurs on or shortly before the counting day. Um, suppose, actually, it only occurs on January 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th. That's not a hypothetical. Maybe that's actually what happened. In the nature of things, no judge deciding primary ballot access you know, would, have, would have been able to rule on that. It hasn't happened yet. No judge deciding general ballot access rules you know, would have been able to decide that. It hasn't happened yet. And, and when the Electoral College actually met in, in December, it hasn't happened yet. And yet, if someone isn't eligible because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, presumably someone should make that decision. And my position would be that's Congress's decision to make. They're the relevant judges. True, the word in the Constitution, judge doesn't appear there, but it's structurally implicit in the whole system. They're counting the votes and they're not potted plants. It's not for the vice president uniquely to decide. That would be absurd. But the body that has the most legitimacy, the and de facto, Supreme Court of America at the founding is on, the, on these and other issues is the Congress. Let me give you finally just my pieces of evidence for that. One, who made the relevant decisions in the first Congress? 
who made the relevant decisions for the first presidential election? Well, of course it was the Congress because there's no Supreme Court that's yet in place because you need, because the Constitution doesn't say how many justices there are going to be. You need a law for that. And for that law, you're going to need to present it to a president and you're going to need to have a president, don't you see? And the president's going to need to nominate people to that Supreme Court. and They're going to need to be confirmed. And obviously none of that has happened yet. And so who actually opened the ballots and counted them and decided whether they were proper or not, whether they, they met the Constitution's requirements? The Congress did. They're going to have to say, yeah, that person is 35. Yeah, that person is a citizen of the United States and has been properly resident. So if of course it was Congress because it couldn't have been anything, anyone else. There's not even a vice president in place yet, much less a president, much less a Supreme Court. Then in 1800, 1801, it was Congress that made certain decisions in counting the ballots between Jefferson and John Adams and Aaron Burr. It was Congress that made the relevant call in 1824-25, which was a, a three-way election between Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams and a guy named Crawford. It was Congress that made the decision in 1872-73. Horace Greeley had gotten a bunch of electoral votes, even though he was already dead at the time. And the question is, you know, do you count them? And the Supreme Court didn't weigh in. Congress decided, and Congress said, actually, we're not going to count the votes for a dead guy. And he wasn't dead before the election, you see. Um, <laughs> so so the, no ordinary judge could have decided this as a matter of ballot primary access or, or primary ballot access or general ballot access. It, it only happened after the election, before the Electoral College met. But Congress made that decision. Congress made the decision again in 1876-77. Those are mighty precedents, huge precedents for the proposition that is Congress that decides these issues. It did it in 1789, did it in 1800, 1801, did it in 1824, 25, did it in 1872, 73, did it in 1876, 77. That was the Hayes-Tilden election. By the way, Andy, you'll be interested in the Hayes-Tilden election because it was a Harvard Yale election. Samuel J. Tilden, who lost, was a Yale man. You know, Hayes was a Harvard guy. By the way, Bush Gore, you'll be interested to know. Oh, that was another Yale Harvard thing. Okay, but I digress. I, I, I shouldn't have gotten you started on the Yale thing. We're, we're not going back to that. Yes, and both Bush and Gore attended the 1968 Yale Harvard game. Oh, I, kn I, knew, I, I knew this was a mistake to even mention this, Andy, but there we go. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's coming. So that's a long, long uh, discourse on coming attractions. Which but, are going to be uh, huge going forward. Yeah. And we're and the podcast that are going to bring you the real experts on this. And I can see there are people on the other side. My friend Steve Calabresi is taking a different position. We've mentioned Michael Mukasey in a past episode and Seth Barrett-Tillman and Josh Blackman and Kurt Lash. My view is they're not just simply wrong, they're quite plainly wrong. This is not a close or hard question. One judge long ago in deciding an earlier related issue called the argument absurd. My friend Michael McConnell, a former judge, called it in front of hundreds of people at FedSoc, very silly. I'm actually with um, Bowdoin Paulson, surely agree with that. So does Magliaca, so does Kraber. These are guys that have really studied the, the matter in, in, in great detail, and I'm with them. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like three words kind of settle it, which would be President Jefferson Davis. But anyway, okay. <laughs> All right, so now we're, we're on to the ostensible subject of today's podcast, which is the recent case that was heard in oral arguments were held at the Supreme Court in the Rahimi case, United States versus Rahimi. This is a gun case, and it, it's really the first case to follow up at the Supreme Court level 
on the Bruin case that we've talked about in the past. So we'll have to revisit that case a little bit. And, you know, we're going to today play for you um, clips from the from the oral argument. So you'll have the opportunity to hear the advocates for both sides, as well as many of the justices themselves. You'll hear their voices. Andy, you know, just uh, let me just pause for a moment. Audience needs to understand this is tremendous work on Andy's part, going through the entire oral argument, picking the best clips, the most important, you know, and then we're going to discuss them. And you're not going to get that anywhere else. Um, you're going to hear from the players themselves, the advocates and the justices across the board in their own voices, making their own arguments, which we think are their best and most important arguments, which we will then analyze for you. You're not going to get that anywhere else. That's what we do on this podcast. So just to give you a sense of how we're going to approach this, you know, the case is about, well, let me give you the quickly, quick summary of the facts of the case. You know, I'm getting these uh, facts of the case. I just picked the website. So in this case, the ACLU wrote a uh, amicus brief, so I'm getting it from their website. Um, and what they said, I'll just read you this paragraph. It's, uh, it's pretty succinct. Mr. Rahimi was convicted of possessing a gun while subject to a domestic violence protective order. This was issued after he violently assaulted his domestic partner in a parking lot and shot a gun when he noticed that others had witnessed his abuse. Mr. Rahimi challenged the law as a violation of the Second Amendment right to bear arms. So that's what the ACLU, who submitted a amicus brief in this case, says the facts of the case were. And, and from my reading of the oral argument, I don't think anyone would dispute anything that was said there. The, the stuff was uh, uh, perhaps not stipulated, but certainly not disagreed with. Um, so for example, just one thing that's relevant, um, Rahimi did not uh, make any kind of due process claim that he wasn't, uh, you know, he didn't have a hearing or that the, you know, that the uh, protective order wasn't, wasn't issued subject to proper process. None of that uh, was asserted. So it has, you know, so whether or not these facts are precise or not is really not the point. Okay. So now, so why are we interested in this case? Well, we're, of course, we're interested in it because we're interested in, I mean, it's a subject of general interest, you know, gun rights and so forth. Um, but we're also interested in it because a lot of the oral argument came down to how you do originalist analysis. Justice Thomas, who was the author of the Bruin case, um, put forth uh, a certain approach that um, I think if you asked him, is this originalism, he would say yes. Um, and some people have said, well, you know, this is, this is not really how you should do it. And then other people have said, well, th this is fine, but the judges and the lower courts did not actually use this method. They used a, you know, a, an inappropriate method. They overread what uh, Justice Thomas had said and, and so forth. So we're going to concentrate in terms of the, the clips that you're going to hear and the analysis on these questions of how do you do this analysis, um, you know, what what is originalism properly applied here, that sort of thing. What we're not going to get into so much is questions of, you know, what's, what's dangerous, what's not dangerous, you know, things like that, kind of the, the nitty-gritty of, of, of the law, uh, the precise statute here. Okay? All right. So the first issue we're going to address here is this question of what is the Bruin test and, you know, how is it properly applied and is this originalism? Okay, so we're going to listen to uh, Solicitor General Prelogar talk about it a little bit. Andy, just in case it's relevant, just setting the stage just a little bit 
more broadly. This is, we've mentioned the Bruin case several times, but there are really three big landmark Supreme Court cases that precede this. There, there are others, but the three important ones in the modern era are the Heller case, that was about the District of Columbia, it was an opinion by Justice Scalia. That was followed by City of Chicago versus McDonald, that was about the City of Chicago. And that was an opinion by Justice, for the court by Justice Alito. And then most recently, the Bruin case out of New York with an opinion of the court, about a New York law with an opinion of the court by Justice Thomas. One other way of putting the, the point, or maybe two, one case was about D.C., one case was about Chicago, one case was about a New York state law. This one's actually about a general federal law applicable in all of the United States. So that's, that's one important distinction. Second important distinction is some of those cases were about guns at home, Chicago and uh, Heller in Chicago. Um, one was about taking guns outside the home, and that was Bruin. This one is about guns more generally. This person, Rahimi, was prohibited from having a gun in a box with a fox and on a train, you know, in the rain, here or there, everywhere. So slightly different set of issues. Right. And by the way, Professor Morris cited in, in two of those cases, uh, City of Chicago versus McDonald, we cited nine times, and in uh, the Bruin case as well. And we're going to actually talk about the, I think, most likely, the citation that takes place, that, that the, the passage that he cited for in the Bruin case is relevant to some of the discussions we're going to be having here. Okay, so here is um, Solicitor General Prelogar. The Fifth Circuit profoundly erred in reading this court's decision in Bruin to prohibit that widespread common-sense response to the deadly threat of armed domestic violence. Like Heller and McDonald, Bruin recognized that Congress may disarm those who are not law-abiding, responsible citizens. That principle is firmly grounded in the Second Amendment's history and tradition. Throughout our nation's history, legislatures have disarmed those who have committed serious criminal conduct or whose access to guns poses a danger. For example, loyalists, rebels, minors, individuals with mental illness, felons, and drug addicts. Rahimi offers no historical evidence that those laws were thought to violate the right to keep and bear arms or that the Second Amendment was originally understood to prevent legislatures from disarming dangerous individuals. Despite all that, the Fifth Circuit held that Section 922 G8 is facially unconstitutional because the founding generation didn't disarm domestic abusers in particular. But Bruin specifically approved that kind of demand for a historical twin. The Fifth Circuit's approach departs from the Second Amendment's original meaning and would enact the very sort of regulatory straitjacket that this court disclaimed in Bruin. Okay, so that's Solicitor General Prelogger. I should just say that when she said that, that Bruin approved the need for a historical twin, I think what she meant was that it did not approve the need for a historical twin um, because it specifically, you know, addresses that. Powerful introduction by Solicitor General Prelogger, and the key analytic point is, in effect, the level of generality at which you conceptualize some of the historical data. She says it's about dangerous persons as such, as opposed to domestic violence protective order recipients or something like that. So she's saying 
And when you understand actually the relevant legal categories and functional and structural and historical considerations, Rahimi is actually analogous to a loyalist or a felon, even if technically he's not, you know, a supporter of King George III and he hasn't been convicted of a felony. But it, it falls into the, the relevant category, which is dangerous persons who shouldn't be um, given dangerous weapons with which they could endanger other law-abiding, peaceful folk. All right. So here's, here's a couple of quotes from Bruin that might be relevant. At one point, Justice Thomas writes, um, Analogical reasoning, which is what he says you have to find here in, in the regulation, in the, the, the tradition of regulation, um, requires only that the government identify a well-established and representative historical analog, not a historical twin. And then now Bruin was about places, you know, places that you could carry a gun and places that you couldn't carry a gun. This is not really about that. But the line, so that so we're going to have to actually draw an analogy between Bruin and this case, just mm -hmm. as they, you know, um, and and so what he says about that is he says although the historical record, this is Justice Thomas, yields relatively few 18th and 19th century sensitive places where weapons were altogether prohibited, for example, legislative assemblies, polling places, and courthouses, we are also aware of no disputes regarding the lawfulness of such prohibitions. So, okay, so, so I think the way you would draw a line from that to this case is we're, we're, t we're talking now about, um, you know, sort of the, the classifications of persons that could, be, uh, that could be disarmed as opposed to the classifications of places nice. where you can disarm someone for. N nice. And what they are both agreeing on is we're not looking for an identical twin. Maybe we're looking for a sibling. Maybe we're looking for a cousin. Maybe we're looking for a family resemblance. So he didn't say that the only places that were off limits were the specific places where you could find an old statute. He says the old statutes showed that they actually did have a sense that guns could be here but not there, that there were there was a category or of off-limit places. And then the question is, what belongs in that category and why? And he did not insist that each and every off-limit place today have a precise counterpart, a twin, a matching twin, an identical twin from the 1800s. I think, though, that, you know, the, the approach that, that she's taking here is she's talking about, you know, a class of people. Mm -hmm. um, now, and that, go, that goes to, that would raise the question of, does the Second Amendment permit such regulation? Right. In other and words, here, and here, are, here are two th different theories. One, you are not part of the people, okay, because you're a loyalist or something. Maybe the people are um, loyal we'll Americans. We'll get to that. We'll right? get to that later. And the mm -hmm. second and distinct thing is, well, maybe, and, and the founding, by the way, you could make an argument that unless you're actually male, you're not part of the militia. And if you're not part of the militia, you're not part of the adjunct, right, of the people. So, so at the founding, it's not entirely 100% clear, for example, that women are swept into being protected by 
the Second Amendment because it says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be abridged. And so, so actually, we talked in an early episode about how the people and the militia were kind of used as almost equivalents, uh, syntactical equivalents. So there's actually a question at the founding whether women counted or not. By the time of the 14th Amendment, there isn't because it's about the privileges and immunities of citizens, and they're surely citizens. They can sue and be sued in diversity jurisdiction and all the rest. So, so one debate is who's covered? Is it just citizens? Is it, is it all persons? Is it the, the people? And what does that mean? A second issue is, okay, you're, you're initially covered, but by your own misconduct, you have forfeited certain rights that you once had. And you could have forfeited them by being disloyal to America. You could have forfeited them by committing a felony. And in this case, you could have forfeited them by your own bad acts that have been adjudicated in such a manner as to make you subject to a lawful domestic protection order. You know, I think that, you know, Justice Thomas talks about you have to find an analogy in the history of regulation. Okay. So there are two ways that you might approach that. So the advocate for Rahimi, Mr. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, <laughs> making no comments on his romantic suitability, he would say, and I think he does say, there's no tradition of regulating domestic violence, domestic violence abusers. There's no tradition of that. Um, and therefore, you can't, you can't disarm someone for being a domestic violence abuser because there's no tradition of that. And uh, Solicitor General Prelogar would say there's a tradition of disarming people that are determined to be dangerous. Exactly. And that's, and that's really the purpose. So, so it's, there's a purposive argument here. Um, and this, you'll hear this, I think. I don't want to go into it anymore right now. But you might listen for this in some of the uh, subsequent clips. And, and two more related points. One is why we stop looking for things in the 18th and 19th centuries. Is it just about tradition or is it about consensus today? And and a recent federal statute, he might itself be strong evidence of consensus. So we're going to talk about that. And relatedly, if actually the the thing that we're looking for, because we're looking at kind of empirical stuff, you know, what have Americans actually done and not done uh, over the course of our history? Um, but if we're not just looking at 1789, 91, or 1868, but stuff that happens later, and several of the justices in Bruin actually um, were counting gun laws today and not just gun laws um, from earlier periods. But if we're doing that, one reason that we might especially want to do that is that today women are fully voters, um, and that wasn't true at, at the time of the Second Amendment. It wasn't true at the time of the 14th Amendment. And if you think domestic abuse is gendered, that men are more likely to be abusers and women are more likely to be abused, this may be a very important fact for you. I think we're going to hear from some uh, about some of that going forward, too. And I do want to give a big shout out to my friend and colleague and, and casebook co-editor, Reva Siegel, who has made that an important part of an amicus brief that she filed, along with Joseph Blocker and others in this case. The, so there's a, a very important feminist angle to this issue that we need to be aware of as, as we hear all these clips. Got two clips on counting here, which we'll get to. Okay, let's just for a moment take a break here uh, to let our audience know the code for getting your continuing legal education credit at podcast.njsba.com. Again, NJSBA stands for 
New Jersey State Bar Association. And the code for this week is freedom. And again, it's not case sensitive. Now, I just have to say, this is not an editorial comment on the Second Amendment representing freedom or anything like that. These codes were given to us by the NJSBA a month ahead of time. They don't even know what this episode is going to be about at the time. So uh, it's just a coincidence <laughs> um, that the word freedom is the code. And even for you, Chris Christofferson and Janis Joplin fans, you will not get credit if you insert in its place um, nothing left to lose. Indeed. Okay. Um, but again, thank you to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering with us on this. And I just think, it, you know, we're getting into the continuing legal education season, I'm told, at least in New Jersey, where a lot of people's licenses are about to come up for renewal and it's time to get that CLE in. So please remember that there are a whole bunch of America's Constitution episodes, back catalog episodes, and you can, you know, look in our, in the list of episodes and they're labeled. Um, just look at the description. It's very obvious which ones are enabled for CLE. So go back and get your CLE and uh, learn a hell of a lot from Professor Amar. So thank you. Let's get back to this discussion that they had about method, about how you how you might apply the, the so-called Bruin test. What is the Bruin test? What does Bruin even say? What is the implication for this with proper originalist uh, analysis? So here's a, uh, a little different take on this, uh, a discussion between Justice Jackson, and, uh, and Solicitor General Prelogar. Uh, I guess I'm trying to understand uh, whether we can really be analyzing this consistent with the Bruin test um, at the level of generality of dangerousness. Um, I, I wonder whether we need to be taking into account how historically domestic violence in particular was treated, so that if we had evidence that, uh, you know, men who engaged in domestic violence historically were actually not perceived as then dangerous um, from the standpoint of, of disarmament. What, 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 what would we do with that in this situation? So I don't think that historical attitudes about dangerousness would be controlling with respect to modern-day circumstances, and I would draw an analogy here to dangerous and unusual weapons. You know, the court has recognized, for example, that handguns were not in common possession at the time of the founding and might have been considered unusual weapons then, but that's not what the court would look at for determining whether you could ban handguns today. But is that just because that's a new technology? I mean, the, the circumstance with respect to domestic violence clearly existed back in the day. And the question, I guess, I'm just trying to understand how the Bruin test works um, in a situation in which uh, there is at least some evidence that domestic violence was not considered to be, uh, you know, subject to the kinds of regulation that it is today. And so when we're looking under that test uh, for historical analogs, I guess, uh, you know, a series of regulations that relate to disarming dangerous people, I, I, I need to understand why that would be enough. Well, so let me try to respond to the methodological point, and then I want to respond to the specific questions you've raised about how domestic violence was treated at the founding and today. On the methodological point, I don't think that you could read Bruin to suggest that we need regulations that specifically disarm domestic abusers, because that would be coming dangerously close to imposing on the government the requirement for an identical twin of a regulation. And of course, original meaning isn't dictated by the happenstance of 
whether there was a law on the books in 1791 that happened to disarm domestic abusers, I think you have to come up a level of generality and use history and tradition to help identify and discern the enduring constitutional principles that define and delimit the scope of the Second Amendment. What what if we had a hypothetical in which we actually determined, uh, based on the historical record, that domestic violence was not considered dangerousness? back in the day. I mean, I I just don't know what we do with that scenario. So I think in that scenario, you would recognize that it is consistent with the Second Amendment's original and enduring meaning that you can disarm dangerous people, and the conception of what regulations that permits today is not controlled by founding-era applications of the principle. Then what's the point of going to the founding era? I mean, I thought it was doing some work, but if we're still applying modern uh, sensibilities, I don't really understand the historical... Uh, framing. The work that history and tradition are doing is helping to discern those principles in the first place. The idea, for example, that you can ban firearms in sensitive places. The fact is that the framers didn't ban firearms in schools, even though they existed at the founding, but the court has already recognized that those analogs and the historic banning of firearms in places where they present safety concerns can justify a modern-day regulation that does require the banning of weapons in schools. And so, too, here, I think the court can identify the constitutional principle, which which it's already articulated. We're not asking the court to break new ground here and say today Section 922G8 is a clear application of that principle that you can disarm dangerous people. And Justice Jackson, I do want to push back on the idea and the premise of your question that there was evidence at the founding, for example, that you couldn't disarm domestic abusers. It's true that the founders didn't do that, but there's no evidence to suggest that they would have thought that that crossed a constitutional line. And the fact that domestic violence was subject to a very different legal and societal regime at the time and was not viewed as the kind of system that warrants systematic governmental interference, I think can't be held against us now that we're looking at how Congress is reacting to the profound threats that armed domestic violence presents. Okay, so kind of a long clip, but I think it does go to the question of the level of generality that's appropriate here. Can you? And I think this is important in thinking about originalist analysis. It's a great clip. And the audience should know that I haven't heard these before. Andy has gone through all this. Andy has taken hours and hours to go through everything and pick clips. This is a spectacular clip. There are four or five things I want to highlight about it, Andy. So, yes, you're hearing. This was an outstanding colloquy back and forth. I'm very impressed, actually, with both Justice Jackson and Justice Prelogar. Really uh, well done. Not Um, Justice Prelogar. Oh, I keep, I keep promoting her, Solicitor General Prelogar, but, but she could be justice one day as Elena Kagan was Solicitor General and is now a justice and, um, and uh, many other people in the past. Since we heard from Justice Katenji Brown Jackson, Robert Jackson was Solicitor General before he was a justice and, and his law clerk was William Rehnquist and his law clerk was John Roberts, among others. Yeah, I, I keep doing that, but, but she's that, she was that good. Okay. That, that was, you know, it was just a, a Freudian slip on my part. Really great both times. So yes, it's about level of generality and what we talked about before. She says it's about dangerousness as opposed to domestic violence as such. I actually think that's the sensible level of generality at which to think about it. And I gave you a slightly different formulation, which is forfeiture. 
You know, you actually, you're, and this is a, a rule that applies across every single amendment. You can forfeit your rights. You know, you have a right to bodily liberty, but when you actually commit bad deeds, you can be incarcerated. The, the 13th Amendment actually says, you know, you can't have slavery and voluntary servitude except for punishment. Even when amendments, you say, well, it doesn't say that in the first, it doesn't say except for punishment. You, uh, but, but we do restrict all your rights, um, whether they're explicitly qualified or not, um, when you've committed bad acts. We, we say you, we've waived your rights, you forfeited your rights. Another legal phrase sometimes uses you're stopped from asserting your rights, you have unclean hands. It's a, it's a broad, general legal principle that cuts across everything. So, and, and she says, dangerousness, and I say, yes, that's connected, this is prelogger, to forfeiture, and it doesn't have to actually be domestic violence as such. So there's that, but there are several other elements that I want to tease out, Andy, but I, I think you want to jump in on just that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, forfeiture, as you're describing, it sounds like punishment, um, in, in a sense, and one of, the, one of the things which you haven't gotten to in this case, but they did talk about a lot, is that um, the classification of dangerous people can include people that haven't committed any acts whatsoever. So, for example, it might be okay to disarm the mentally ill because they may not be, be you know, they might pose a danger if they were in possession of, of, a, of, a, of a weapon. And also, you know, Justice Thomas tried to make a big deal about civil versus criminal findings um, that, you know, this guy hasn't been convicted of a crime, perhaps, um, and yet this order of protection is in place to prevent danger. Um, so forfeiture in, in terms of punishment, I mean, perhaps that has other, mean, has other meanings as well, but I think that it's not, not limited to, to, that, uh, you know, to that category. Not all disabilities and deprivations are punishment in legal contemplation. One really important case, it, it's interesting because Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion Justice Breyer wrote the dissent. It was five to four. It was 1997, I believe. I think that was the year that our dear friend Neil Katyal, also acting Solicitor General of the United States at one point in his life, was a clerk to, to Breyer. It's called Kansas versus Hendricks. And five to four, the Supreme Court said, even if you haven't been criminally convicted of something, you can be physically detained, subject to civil commitment, civil detention, if you're a danger to others or yourself. And even if you actually have already been convicted of a misdeed and you've served your time, it is not double jeopardy to afterwards subject you to civil commitment. Not even all deprivations are because necessarily of a past bad act. Forfeiture is often you did something wrong, um, but other situations are just we can't let you do certain things, maybe because of no fault of your own, but by reason of mental defect or something uh, else. We just can't let you be roaming around in the world because you're a danger to others or yourself. And for very similar reasons, we can't let you roam around with guns. Maybe because you've actually committed a crime that you've been convicted of, that would be felon disarmament. Maybe it's because although you, we haven't convicted you of a felony yet, you actually have done bad things and you've been adjudicated to have done bad things. And so there's a, a protective order that's issued against you. That's the facts of Rahimi. Or maybe it, you haven't done either of those things, but you, you, we just think it would be dangerous to allow you to, to have guns. And so we have felon disarmament, we have forfeiture disarmament, 
And for example, we, we have disarmament of uh, five-year-olds. Uh, they just are not allowed to have guns because they are a threat. The trick is here that, I mean, Justice Thomas in, in Bruin made it clear that he doesn't want courts engaging in balancing tests. You know, to, to say that, well, we have to balance the public safety against the right to bear arms. But rather, there is regulation that recognizes this concept of dangerousness, which is in, which is inherent to, to the, which is part of the original concept of the Second Amendment. I think that's what he would say, that the Second Amendment originally conceived that there would be people that were considered dangerous and that they would be properly excluded from being armed under the Second Amendment. Let's go back to the Colorado case just a moment because I said there's a difference between trial judges and state Supreme Court justices, for example. That was in the state system of Colorado. And I said there's a deferential um, standard of review when we're talking about facts because the trial judge saw the witnesses, saw the physical evidence, and appellate judges defer to trial judges about fact, but not on legal issues. On legal issues, the appellate court typically has, has more than one judge, and this is what they are basically hired to, to do is to especially get the, the law right. Okay, now let's apply all of that to Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas was justifiably frustrated, as were several members of the coalition in Bruin, that lower court judges, now we're talking about lower federal court judges, weren't taking seriously the basic vision of the Heller case and the McDonald case, which said gun rights are significant, they're important, they're in the Constitution, they're not in the First Amendment, they're in the Second, but you need to take them seriously. And then, you know, here's the, the, the tricky thing. The way we take, for example, First Amendment rights seriously or Fourth Amendment rights seriously. Now, the way we think of uh, take those seriously, I don't mean in exactly the same way. I'm not talking about an identical twin. Let me give you an example of why clearly I'm not talking about identical twin. This is something that I wrote long ago. Violent felons, even while in prison, and especially after their release, obviously have a First Amendment right to print opinions in newspapers. Yet such felons have never had a Second Amendment right to own guns in prison. <laughs> Even the NRA accepts this double standard. But what underlies it? The obvious commonsensical idea is that guns in the hands of dangerous felons can hurt others in ways that their words cannot. Okay, so here's what Justice Thomas and his judicial allies were trying to say, I think, in Bruin. We don't like the fact that lower courts are not following the lead of Heller and McDonald. They're not taking Second Amendment rights seriously. They're balancing them away, making certain factual findings perhaps, but also always finding some excuse to rule against the Second Amendment claim. And they're not taking seriously the fact that in Heller, the Second Amendment claim won. And in City of Chicago versus McDonald, the Second Amendment claim won. So but Bruin is trying to come up with a framework to prevent that kind of, let's call it underruling by courts. I think it may have gone too far in a certain historical test, but what they really want to do is just reject kind of a, a balancing approach that in their minds made the Second Amendment a second-class right, just balancing it away all the time because judges don't like guns or something, and they, they are more sympathetic to speech. I think Bruin's particular way of doing it may have been a little too ambitious, and I said this before, too adventurous in looking for a precise historical analog. But even then, I thought 
there's a way of reading Bruin that would be the most sensible. And I predicted it's how Bruin would be read and it's how Prelogger is reading it, saying, taking seriously the language which is important. You couldn't have gotten five votes for Bruin without this language, saying, well, we look to historical analogs, but we don't insist on a twin. Okay, and that's very important. Now, two other things in that wonderful exchange between Justice Jackson and Prelogra. If we're not looking at a twin, what are we looking for and when are we looking? So there was discussion about, in Justice Jackson's question, what about the founding and all the rest? Well, even in Bruin, there was a discussion of whether we should especially be looking at the founding when the Second Amendment was adopted or at the time of Reconstruction when these Second Amendment rights were made applicable against states and were also re-glossed against the federal government. So that's one thing. Should we look at uh, 1791 or 1868? And in fact, it's on precisely that question, Andy, that I was cited in Bruin. You, you mentioned I was cited in Bruin. So there's that. But more broadly still, why stop at 1868? Are we just looking at old tradition or are we looking at modern consensus? And this is the counting thing that um, you and I have talked about before. Um, what about societal understandings more broadly today in America? Mm -hmm. Now, let's connect all of that to the issue of gender because we heard an amazing clip between a female justice and a female solicitor general and they're talking about an issue that actually is gendered, in fact, because it's generally believed, and I think it's true, that domestic abusers are more paradigmatically male and their abuse victims are more paradigmatically female. How do we think about that? Especially given that women didn't vote at the founding, women didn't vote actually even at the time of the Civil War, the women didn't vote even when the 19th Amendment comes along because um, if they already voted before the 19th Amendment, you wouldn't have needed the 19th Amendment was about women's suffrage. So here are some points. You heard Justice Jackson early on, use a, she used a word, and I just don't want you to miss it. The word was men. Now, I told you before the original Second Amendment, I'm not sure women had a right to guns at the founding. If it's about militias, they're not part of the militia. They're not part of an army, okay? I do think they had a right to a gun after the 14th Amendment. That was about people having a right to have guns in their homes for self-protection, and it was no longer linked to a militia idea. And that's absolutely true. So now, actually, at least they have a right to have guns, whether they're in the militia or not for their own protection. And, and I think that that right applies not just against states and localities. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge fundamental privileges and immunities. I think that new gun right of every citizen, whether or not part of the militia, to have a gun in the home for self-protection applies even against the federal government. And Bruin cites me, actually, for the proposition. They don't endorse it. They don't reject it. They just said, there's this interesting debate. And there are scholars, citing Amar, who think that you have to look at the time of the 14th Amendment for the meaning of the right, not just against states and localities, but against the federal government itself. So there's all of that. But now we're focusing on a slightly different thing, not just who has a right to have a gun. And I'm saying women surely do by the time of the Reconstruction, even if they didn't at the time of the founding. But also now, what about limiting gun rights? And what about limiting gun rights in order in general to protect women themselves? Yes, there are reasons you might not have had a domestic 
abuse law in place at the founding because only men are voting. And there's a reason you might not have had a domestic abuse law in place even at the time of the 14th Amendment because only, uh, only men are voting. And it's only after the 19th Amendment, you see, that women are going to be voting everywhere. And on this view, we should pay particular attention to what especially Congress, but also state legislatures have done after women started getting the vote. If we're trying to think about how rights are sometimes bounded, sometimes balanced, because they're, they're competing societal considerations. And, and you heard, I think, the Solicitor General Prelogger use the word societal or society at one point, and society includes today, obviously, women as well as men. All of that was in that clip. And the final point, and we've talked about this before, and Andy, you've begun to hint at it, um, is Bruin didn't just talk about history. And when it talked about history, it said, we don't insist on a twin. And I think Sister General Prelogger is just right on that. But it also, again and again, talked, it said tradition, but in fact, it also was talking about consensus. The second paragraph of the opinion actually says 43 states are diverging from New York. New York is really an outlier. The word 43 appeared several times in the majority opinion, and this we definitely have emphasized, four different times in a three-page concurrence by Justice Kavanaugh, joined by Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh says this is an outlier statute, and that four times the word 43 appears. Um, that this New York law was way out of sync with the means of, why is that relevant? Because here, Andy, we deal with a congressional law. You can't get a law passed through Congress unless lots of states are on board via the House of Representatives, via the Senate, via the Electoral College and the presidency. They're all part of that lawmaking process. And that's why I emphasized earlier when we were talking about the earlier cases that Heller was just about D.C. It was a D.C. ordinance. And City of Chicago versus McDonald was just, and, and that it was an outlier ordinance. Um, preventing people from having, uh, law-abiding people from having guns in their home for self-protection, and they had done nothing wrong in any way, and they um, were presumptively competent to wield this right. City of Chicago versus McDonald also deprived um, a lawful homeowner of a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, and there was no reason of a forfeiture or anything else applied on the facts of, of that case. That was an outlier city ordinance in Chicago. An outlier ordinance in D.C. The New York law was not a city law, but a state law, but it was also an outlier. 43, they said, it's actually 44, states didn't do it that way. Um, and here we deal with a law that's not remotely an outlier, a law that Congress has passed, to repeat, with, you know, with lots of input from lots of states, a law that has counterparts in many modern state statutes. And the kicker is these congressional, that this congressional law and these state laws are the product of a more inclusive process of political participation because after the 19th Amendment, women are voting equally. And if women are more likely to be domestic abuse victims than domestic abusers, oh, that's really relevant to how we think about how the right might be bounded. You know, I just wanted to amplify that in terms of this question of, you know, uh, of voting. You've written about uh, how the the structure of voting at the founding was justified in the minds of of contemporaries uh, because of this concept of virtual representation, the idea that that a husband could reasonably be thought to represent the interests of the wife and the and the children, not so slaves, of course, which is why um, that wouldn't apply in that case. But in the realm of domestic violence, you know, now that you've established that your belief that it's 
largely gendered, if not entirely. And I think that that's a fair point. Um, this is a particularly appropriate uh, area to to consider to consider that virtual representation really is did not apply. Now, two thing, three things, three reasons that we might think that. One is it obviously makes sense that women might want to you know feel that they shouldn't be abused. Okay. Second one, just an anecdotal one. You've talked about you know Abigail Adams sending John John Adams off with "Remember the Ladies" and how. Uh, what she meant by that was uh, questions of domestic abuse. And then an international uh, example in Great Britain in the early 19th century, you have uh, the the Chartists, an important uh, liberalizing movement that women joined in large numbers. And then their leaders eventually essentially surrender their position in exchange for a promise that there will be legislation against domestic abuse. So women clearly felt that this was important, and I think we can reasonably assume that had they had the vote, they would have voted differently uh, or, or you know, championed domestic abuse regulation, let's say. So the fact that it didn't exist at the founding um, and does exist now after the 19th Amendment is passed, uh, I think is, a, is powerful for these reasons. On all that, just yet another big, big shout out to uh, the great Reva Siegel, my friend and colleague at Yale Law School, who has an important amicus brief with Joseph Blocker and others on this issue about gendered violence. Also, Reva has a really interesting article in the Harvard Law Review all about the 19th Amendment. It's called She the People. And Andy, in our discussion of the United States versus Moore case, Moore versus United States, there's a really interesting question about the founding um, ideas of taxation and how they were maybe modified or not by the 16th Amendment. You know, here we're talking about a similar issue about how founding understandings were modified, in my view, by the 14th Amendment. And Reva says, oh, and don't forget the 19th Amendment in all of this. This is what serious originalism is all about. I don't think Scalia was a serious originalist. It's about actually the fact that our Constitution isn't just about the founding. And you heard a question about just that from Justice Jackson. It's an intergenerational project. There have been amendments and the serious, and they've been added as postscripts. The, the text hasn't been completed completely word processed and rewritten. And so one of the big questions is, how much does an, one early understanding need to be modified because of amendments that happen later on? The 14th Amendment, or the 16th Amendment, or the 19th Amendment. This is what my colleague, the great Bruce Ackerman, has called the challenge of intergenerational synthesis. And his example of the, the, maybe the, the, the best uh, illustration of that is how we think about the Bill of Rights differently because of the 14th Amendment than originally, and now we're adding the 19th Amendment to the mix. Just as in the Moore case, we had to think about both the founding and the 16th Amendment understandings of taxation. Well, it's interesting in this case in particular, you know, you talk because you say, well, there's a Second Amendment understanding, and then perhaps it's changed by the 14th Amendment, but this law is a federal law, and therefore the incorporation aspects of the 14th Amendment may not be perhaps as relevant in some ways. On the other hand, if the amendment as a whole changes the understanding of the Second Amendment, then perhaps even though it's a federal law, it's still relevant, the 14th Amendment, in our understanding of the Second Amendment. So how does, how does that all cash out? Uh, let me read to you 
uh, one of my favorite sentences from Bruin, and I'm, I'm laughing at myself, is one of my favorite sentences because it cites me. But, but here's the key passage that I think is actually theoretically significant. It appears at page 29 of the Bruin opinion, the slip opinion, uh, per Justice Thomas, joined by a majority of the court. We also, we being the court, we also acknowledge that there is an ongoing scholarly debate on whether courts should primarily rely on the prevailing understanding of an individual right when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, when defining its scope, parenthesis, as well as the scope of the right against the federal government, close parenthesis. See, Amar, the Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction, and there's another scholar who's cited, uh, my friend Kurt Lash, my student, and he cited with the following parenthetical. When the people adopted the 14th Amendment into existence, they re-adopted the original Bill of Rights, and did so in a manner that invested these original 1791 texts with new 1868 meanings, unquote. Back to the court. We, that is the court, need not address this issue today because, as we explained below, the public understanding of the right to keep and bear arms in both 1791 and 1868 was, for all relevant purposes for that case, the same um, with respect to public carry. Um, but that might not be true for each and every other Second Amendment issue or First Amendment issue or Fourth Amendment issue or what have you. Okay. Um, so, so now let's get back to the, um, to the argument itself. And, you know, all this, as I said at the beginning, is going to questions of methodology and how, how really can we apply Bruin. And there's been a lot of concern in the media, and I think it's actually some of it has turned out to be warranted, that lower courts might go astray um, and overread Bruin. And I think this case is a good example of that, frankly. But anyway, um, so the court is doing us a, a service by, by taking this case and considering perhaps giving more guidance in how uh, Bruin should be applied. I think Justice Kagan and some of the other justices view this case as an opportunity to give clarity to low, lower courts on how they should apply Bruin. And, and there's a colloquy here between uh, Justice Kagan and Solicitor General Prelogger, and then Justice Gorsuch joins in. So you'll hear a number of justices talking here. So listen to this. Uh, it's a somewhat long uh, colloquy here. Justice Kagan? General, there seems to be a fair bit of division and a fair bit of confusion about what Bruin means and what Bruin requires uh, in the lower courts. And I'm wondering if you think that there's any useful guidance uh, in addition to resolving this case, but uh, any useful guidance uh, we can give to lower courts about the methodology that Bruin um, requires be used and how that applies cases even outside of this one? Yes. I think that there are three fundamental errors in methodology that this case exemplifies and that we are seeing repeated in other lower courts and that this case provides an opportunity for the court to clarify that Bruin should not be interpreted in the way that respondent is suggesting. The first error we see is that respondent has asserted here and other courts have embraced the idea that the only thing that matters under Bruin is regulation. In other words, you can't look at all of the other sources of history that usually bear on original meaning. And I 
I don't think that that can be squared with this court's precedent, starting with Heller, which consulted a, a wide variety of historical sources, the same kind of evidence we've come forward with here about English practice, state constitutional precursors, treatises, commentary, state judicial decisions. All of that is relevant evidence about the scope of the Second Amendment right, and I think the court could make clear that it's not a regulation-only test. Second, I think that looking just at regulations themselves, one of the fundamental problems with how courts are applying Bruin is the level of generality at which they're parsing the historical evidence. Court after court has looked at the government's examples and picked them apart to say, well, taking them one by one, there's a minute minute difference between how this regulation operated in 1791 or the ensuing decades and how Section 922 provisions operate today. And I think that comes very close to requiring us to have a dead ringer when Bruin itself said that's not necessary. The way constitutional interpretation usually proceeds is to use history and regulation to identify principles, the enduring principles that define the scope of the Second Amendment right. And so we think that you should make clear the court should come up a level of generality and not nitpick the the historical analogs that we're offering to that degree. And third and finally, I think that in many instances, courts are placing dispositive weight on the absence of regulation in a circumstance where there's no reason to think that that was due to constitutional concerns. So for example, here we don't have a regulation disarming domestic abusers, but there is nothing on the other side of the interpretive question in this case to suggest that anyone thought you couldn't disarm domestic abusers or couldn't disarm dangerous people. And in that kind of context, I think to suggest that the absence of regulation bears substantially on the meaning of the Second Amendment is to take a wrong turn. It's contrary to the situation the court confronted in Bruin where there was a lot of historical evidence to say states can't completely prohibit public carry. And against that evidence, you might say that the absence of regulation is significant. But here there's nothing on the other side of this interpretive question, and I think that that just shows that you shouldn't hold the absence of a direct regulation against us. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch? Good morning, General. Um, I want to follow up on your response to Justice Kagan, I think your second response, the level of generality question. Do you you think the level of generality — I take your point. You've got surety laws. You've got affray laws. You've got a lot of historical evidence, maybe not the historical twin. And and you're saying we should overlook that. In the same way, I think you would say, I, I want to make sure you'd say, the analysis also applies similarly to the, to the right side of the ledger, the regulation side and the right side. We're not looking for, is, is, it, a, is it a fowler or is, is it a musket? Um, is, is that a fair understanding of, you, of, you, of how you see the law? Yes, we think that it applies in both directions, both in understanding the right itself and in understanding the limitations that are built into that right. Okay. Okay. So, you know, again, I think you're trying to give guidance to lower courts. So what do you take from that? I take heart from all of that. I think all of that was a very intelligent colloquy. Um, every single one of those participants impressed me. And again, our audience should know that I'm hearing these for the first time because Andy has, has curated the experience for me as well as for you. First, I really do love the fact that that began with a colloquy between, I believe, the first female solicitor general of the United States and the second uh, female solicitor general of the United States. That was Elena Kagan and Prelogger. Now you see why I keep wanting to try to promote Prelogger to the court because that's a, a, a natural path. And it was an excellent question, but truthfully, it was a softball. Okay, he, I'm, I'm giving you an invitation because Elena 
Kagan used to be, you know, on the other side of the podium. And that was, it's nice to be able to get your argument out. And she gave Solicitor General Prelar a chance to actually summarize her, her fundamental position. Um, and, and that was nice. And she does represent the United States and the executive branch. And I thought she hit it out of the park. I thought she made three excellent points. You know, you're not uh, looking for a twin and it's not just a regulation and what you are looking for are principles. These are originalist points where now actually these are liberals on the court and they're starting to do originalism. And that's really heartening to me. And Justice Gorsuch chimes in, well, you know, it's also symmetric. It's not just about the, the, um, the limitations on a right, but the affirmative scope on the right shouldn't actually always be um, in search of a twin. The, yeah, we protect the internet and the radio and television, even though they're not technically a printing press or oral speech, and that's on the right side, and also on the restriction side. What uh, Solicitor General Prelogger basically said, in law, there is actually a little um, a saying, a maxim, a motto, that the absence of presence is not the same thing as the presence of absence. And so she's saying, yeah, I may not have actually a specific regulation, but what, I, but what they don't have is any evidence that there was a thought that, the, that, that you couldn't have a regulation for constitutional reasons. I thought it was very intelligent all the way around. Yeah, and I mean, look, I think Justice Kagan, we, you know, wants to give guidance to lower courts, so it, it's, you know, asking for input on it is not is not a, is reasonable. And, and and you gave the court credit for taking the case to actually set the lower court straight, and I do give the court credit for granting certiorari. I also should give credit to uh, Solicitor General Prelogo because I'm pretty sure she's the one who asked for this case to be reviewed. She thought it would be a frankly a good vehicle, a good set of facts to start to kind of correct the overreading of Bruin and arguably the overwriting, but definitely the overreading of Bruin that we've been seeing post-Bruin, at least in certain places, in the Fifth Circuit, for example. Okay, so we've heard a lot from the Solicitor General. Now we're going to hear from the advocate for the uh, for Mr. Rahimi, and he's about to get under the gun from Justice Kagan, who perhaps isn't quite as sympathetic to his position. Um, under the gun, so to speak. Yes, and this is the longest clip that we're going to play here, so uh, bear with us on this one. Mr. Wright, may, may I ask um, just about your basic argument here? Um, and I'm just going to read you a sentence from the brief, and I want to know whether, you know, that's your essential argument. It says, uh, the government has yet to find even a single American jurisdiction that adopted a similar ban while the founding generation walked the earth. So is that what we should be looking for? And uh, if we don't find that similar ban, we uh, – say that the government has no right to do anything? Your Honor, I think that's largely what Bruin says. Um, however, I don't think it has to be so narrow. So if the government could affirmatively prove from the historical tradition of either uh, American firearms laws or even I would be willing to spot them the way that we have treated other fundamental constitutionally protected rights. If they could tie it to one of those historical traditions. That would be good enough under the logic of Bruin, if not the exact uh, rule of decision. I'm, I'm not quite sure what the answer means. I mean, I took that sentence to be saying we're looking for a regulation that, even if it's not every jot and tittle, is essentially um, uh, targeting the same kind of conduct as the regulation under review. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the Solicitor General told us that was the wrong approach, uh, that what Bruin really uh, directs courts to do is to think about the various principles 
that were operating at that time, whether those principles gave rise to a particular regulation that was near identical to the one under review. And, and so I guess I'm asking you to comment on those two ways of understanding Bruin. I think both methodological um, positions lead to the same result, which is affirmance of the decision below. Um, it's not just something that is about domestic violence or a ban that's punishable by exactly 10 years. In other words, that's the way that some of the amici have described what we're arguing for. I'm saying there's no ban. There's no history of bans for people who are part of the national community. They don't exist. Uh, I'm saying that the plain text of the Second Amendment, the way that it distinguished from the English common law tradition, I'm saying that the early commentators like St. George Tucker and William Rawl, they all said, if you're just keeping the firearm... So, but that does suggest, I mean, that you're looking for a ban on domestic violence. Um, And, you know, uh, 200-some years ago... The problem of domestic violence was conceived very differently. People had a different understanding of the harm. People had a different understanding of the right of government to try to prevent the harm. People had different understandings with respect to pretty much every aspect of the problem. So if you're looking for a ban on domestic violence, it's not going to be there. Justice Kagan, I'm looking for a ban. I'm looking for a ban, a criminal punishment for just the keeping of a firearm. That's what I'm looking for. And it's based not on the loss of status of citizenship um, you know, or being outside the community. I'm looking for a ban that applies to a rights-holding American citizen. I mean, that's, I'd start with that. Um, short of that, again, and I suspect the response to that is this court has tentatively approved felon in possession, but felons are so different. They have all kinds of process. There's a long tradition of denying people convicted of infamous crimes all manner of rights of citizenship or not. So, if I could just set that aside, there's no ban. Because at the time, the, when the people of the time actually wrote about it, they wrote that there's no right to misuse a firearm. So the allegations that have made against my client, we do not contend that behavior is protected by the Second Amendment. The behavior that's protected is the keeping of arms. The behavior that is also protected is the carrying of arms, but I would concede, I would concede there is a strong historical tradition of providing more restrictions against the right to public carry, because that's where you encounter other people. This is someone who is keeping a firearm in his own home. The oldest American tradition, at least of a federal government, someone who everyone agreed was subject to the Second Amendment passing that kind of law, was 1968. This tie is older than that so-called tradition, Your Honor. It, it just, it's 20th century, late 20th century. And so, we disagree at a very fundamental level of whether there is this tradition. So you, your argument is that, <clears throat> except for someone who has been convicted of a felony, uh, a person may not be prohibited from possessing a firearm in the home. Is that correct? I would add one more caveat to it, Justice Alito, and that is if severe criminal punishment will result, because that is something that Heller itself and Bruin itself took into this balance, because what it, the right that's protected is the right of someone who, by keeping the firearm, you know, is used for lawful, someone who's keeping a firearm for lawful purposes. How does this regulation infringe on that? If it is a small fine or even loss of the weapon, maybe that doesn't violate that right. You could make it illegal. You're prohibited from keeping a weapon. But if we figured out that you had a weapon in your bedroom... You you may have to pay for it, you know, but you're not going to go to prison for 10 or 15 years. You're not going to get felony liability. I think all of those things together are incredibly important about this ban 
because they are. It is not based on loss of rights of citizenship. It is applied against rights holders. It is a total ban, and it is punishable by an incredible amount of prison time. So let me give you this example. Suppose the state judge determines after a hearing that a man has repeatedly threatened to shoot the members of his family, has brandished the gun, has terrified them, and orders the man uh, not enters a restraining order preventing that man from possessing a firearm any place, including in the home. Is that constitutional? I think the answer is probably yes. If he did, I think it probably is. Um, I would want to know more about what the historical tradition showed, but certainly courts have always had broad power uh, against the people who are brought before them. And I so, think that would be consistent with the historical So the difference you see between that order and the prosecution for uh, – for uh, uh, violating the order is the fact that the latter uh, imposes a a felony punishment. That's one difference, and it's an important difference under this court's case law. Another difference is that the defendant had a real opportunity, you know, in standing before the court to say either, number one, I didn't do that, or number two, something was wrong with me, I'll never do that again, and I'll move across the country so I can assure you that they will be safe. But I'm very frightened to be, you know, without my arms. Uh, So you would have a chance to entreat with the person who's putting in the restriction. If the restriction itself was unlawful, the person would have a chance to appeal it to a higher authority, to an appellate court, and say, uh, this judge got it wrong. You know, this is not lawful, either under the Constitution or under this state's substantive law. All of those things are different in the situation that you describe, and I think they are constitutionally significant differences between that and what we have here. So are you suggesting if there's a sufficient showing of dangerousness, that can be the basis for disarming even with respect to possession in the home? Again, it's a, it's a much closer question for me because it is, I have yet to see a, a historical example of that applied against a citizen. Um, and it would certainly be a last resort type of situation. So, Well, to the but, extent that's pertinent, you don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? Your Honor, I would want to know what dangerous person means. At well, I mean, someone who's shooting, uh, uh, you know, at people, uh, that's a good start. So, so it, <laughs> that's fair. I'll say this. If a, imagine a statute that had been written that was the what Zaki Rahimi has been accused of statute. And very prescient legislators, you know, way ahead of the game. If you have done all of these nine things and it's proven to a constitutionally significant uh, level of abstraction, you don't get to keep your gun. We're going to come and take it from you. And, and you just, sorry, you just don't. Constitutional, 100%. I thought you just said no. I thought you said there's no history of any kind of ban for anything that doesn't relate to felonies. I, and and, and I, I want to be clear that the, there is no one that I've found anyway. Um, I think it would stem from a court's either historical equitable powers or, uh, you know, the rights of the government to literally protect someone from imminent danger to life and limb. Uh, There are examples, uh, some of the early Justice of the Peace manuals that talk about if you see someone who is on the way to commit a crime with a weapon, you can take the weapon away from them, and you don't have to institute proceedings immediately. However, you do have to institute them pretty quick after that. I'm so confused, because I thought your argument was that there was no history or tradition, as Justice Kagan just said, of this kind of, of disarmament in this circumstance. But now it kind of sounds like your objection is just to the process. Like, are you making Judge Ho's argument only? Uh, no, Your Honor, I'm not making Judge Ho's argument only. 
the, the law that's before us right now is a ban. It's a ban that's passed by a legislature, and it, um, it is, you can't get around it. You can't even ask the state court to say, you know, I will accept a protection order, a stay-away order. Just give me permission to keep firearms for my own self-defense. That will not prevent this ban from kicking in. Um, and it has severe penalties that result from it, and it applies everywhere, even in the home. I think all of those things together make this statute unconstitutional. I understood the question to be, what about something else? Would that be constitutional? And I think so, but we would need to know, uh, we do need to do a full workup on the history and tradition that supported that. Uh, you know, that's, a, that's something that I don't think this court can answer in this case because there's no such law before the court. Well, but it's a facial challenge, and right. I understand your answer to say that there will be circumstances where someone could be shown to be sufficiently dangerous that the firearm can be taken from him. Yes. And why isn't that the end of the case? Because All you need to do is show that there are circumstances in which the statute can be constitutionally applied. Okay, well, this guy might have had an Eighth Amendment here for cruel and unusual punishment <laughs> in this uh, colloquy. But, uh, but okay, but that's his attempt to, to answer the Solicitor General. Your comments. So, Andy, you and I are going to go down to oral argument very soon in the, the Moore case. And last year, we were down for oral argument in another Moore case, Moore versus Harper. And this is what I love about oral argument. This is so intelligent. These are smart justices who were picking up on each other across the aisle. You see, you heard one Democratic appointee and three Republican appointees, actually. And there was a time, Andy, when the Senate was intelligent. I used to testify before it, and I don't feel that nearly so much anymore. And don't get me started on the House. And our audience has heard in many episodes, my genuine respect for um, the justices and the court and its processes. And, and you see it here because this is actually logic at work. They're actually as asking questions. And, and this guy was vamping all over the place and he was getting sliced and diced. This is like four Socratic law professors with one mediocre student who's like a deer in the headlights here. So first he said, oh, there's got to be, you know, an absolute historical analog contra a Solicitor General Prelogger. And then, you know, he got pushed and pushed and he retreated all the way back to, oh, it's just a due process test. And at the end, they said, yes, but this is a facial challenge. And on the facts, uh, you know, you've got, you got a client who was a bad dude, don't you? You know, and he just gave it up. Big shout out. So it, it was started by Elena Kagan, who's very, you know, good at this and has been on the other side of the podium. But it actually started to shift, I think, when Sam Alito, who is a spectacular interlocutor, he's, he, he asked great questions, pushed him. And then the chief jumped in. And what I love most of all, you know, is Justice Barrett. And, and she's so polite. She said, I'm confused. What she, of course, meant is, you are deeply confused, you know, attorney, right? And he was. He was just, oh. But, Andy, I hope we see something interesting um, when we go down. But, but that's oral argument at its best, exposing the fundamental problems with this guy's basic approach. So, uh, the Solicitor General does get a chance to rebut, and she, she took it. So, um Oh, if I had been in her shoes, I just might have said, you know, you know, nothing to add, Your Honor. Just, you know, <laughs> um, nothing more um, to see here. But uh, yeah, but so, um, you know, we were going to play this stuff on counting and everything else, but I think we're running a little long. So let, why don't we give uh, the Solicitor General the last word for today? We can pick up on this uh, some more, and, and I have more clips to play, of course, in the future. 
But let's listen to the Solicitor General get her last word here. Rebuttal, General. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. My friend began his argument this morning in response to a question from Justice Kagan saying that he does read Bruin to require the government to come forward with a precise historical analog in order to justify a modern-day firearms regulation. I think that is a clearly incorrect reading of Bruin. Unfortunately, it's a profound misreading that many lower courts have been adopting, and I think that it's important for the court to understand the destabilizing consequences of that reading in the lower courts. Just last week, a court invalidated Section 922 G1, the felon prohibition statute, on its face, as applied to the most violent and horrific crimes imaginable, on the theory that the government didn't have a sufficiently precise historical analog to justify a permanent ban on felons. Many courts now, several district courts, have credited as-applied challenges to Section 922 G1 by armed career criminals who have multiple convictions for aggravated assault, drug trafficking, armed robbery, clearly violent crimes, because we don't have a sufficient historical analog disarming those subject to precisely those crimes at the founding. And a court has also invalidated on its face the provision of federal law that prohibits possession of firearms with obliterated serial numbers, again on the theory that we don't have a founding-era analog that is sufficiently precise that says you have to serialize firearms possession. I think that those are clearly untenable results. They are profoundly destabilizing, and Bruin doesn't require them. Once the court corrects the misinterpretation of Bruin, then I think the constitutional principle is clear. You can disarm dangerous persons. And under that principle, Section 922 G8 is an easy case. It's an easy case for three reasons. First, it requires an individualized finding of dangerousness. Now, I think I heard my friend to concede today that those kinds of individualized findings of dangerousness do suffice for disarmament, and he questions whether the process in state court judicial proceedings is sufficient. But that ultimately is a procedural claim that should be adjudicated under the Due Process Clause, and I think that it ignores two fundamental features that are relevant here. First, the Section 922 G8 guarantees notice in a hearing. It only permits disarmament in those situations, so the most fundamental protection of due process is validated under this provision. And second, that there is a presumption of regularity that exists in this context. And to to say or suggest that all of these state court procedural uh, orders, protective orders, are fundamentally flawed or inherently unreliable, I think would override that presumption in this case and be profoundly unsettling for the state courts that are on the front lines here trying to protect victims of domestic violence. I think as well that these principles equally demonstrate subparagraph C2's validity. We think that there is an inherent requirement that the court find that the threat of physical force is likely to occur in order to justify entering that kind of judicial finding, and that provides a basis to uphold Section 922 G8 with respect to all of its applications. The second reason why this is an easy case is because there is a legislative consensus. It is not just Congress, but 48 states and territories share this view that armed domestic violence needs to be guarded against and that disarmament is a permissible legislative response. And so I think that further fortifies the congressional judgment. And the third reason why Section 922 G8 should be an easy case is because it does guard against a profound harm. A woman who lives in a house with a domestic abuser is five times more likely to be murdered if he has access to a gun. And it's not just the harms in the home. It extends to the public and to police officers as well. I was struck by the data showing that that domestic violence calls are the most dangerous type of call for a police officer to respond to in this country. And for those officers who 
who die in the line of duty, virtually all of them, are murdered with handguns. Section 922G8 takes account of those concerns, and here, history and tradition confirm common sense. Congress can disarm armed domestic abusers in light of those profound concerns. So we'd ask the court to correct the Fifth Circuit's methodological errors and reverse. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. Very impressive. Two or three quick points. One, lower courts have gotten it wrong, she's saying. So that's why the Supreme Court needs to take this case and set them straight. And here's one reason that they've gotten it wrong. It's not just the language of Bruin. It's that the three big cases have been ones that the government has lost and the Second Amendment claimant has won. Heller, McDonald, the Chicago versus McDonald, and Bruin. And frankly, the government lost some of those earlier cases, and those early cases deserve to have been lost. I, I think the cases were, on their facts, rightly decided. But now we actually have a case where the government is going to win, and clearly so, and there's going to be something on the other side. Because if you're a lower court judge and you just see Second Amendment wins, Second Amendment wins, Second Amendment wins, or Second and Fourteenth Amendment, you don't have actually a case on the other side showing you when you'd go too far, okay? Just even the fact of a case where the court has said, in a, the government wins, the Second Amendment claimant has gone too far, 14th Amendment claimant, that's going to be genuinely helpful in focusing lower courts so they understand, actually, that the rule isn't the Second Amendment always wins. Um, the pendulum now will be shifting back, and she picked, the Solicitor General did, a perfect case to illustrate that, because this guy is a bad dude, as even uh, Sam Alito and John Roberts said. Second point, there was a word. It was an important word. She said it once. The word is woman, because when she was talking about the domestic abuse victim, she said woman, and, and that's important. But third, then she said, oh, and this is brilliant. She's playing a kind of a conservative law enforcement card. You know, police officers, some of whom are female, of course, but others whom are male, are also at risk, because these people who are defying protective orders aren't just putting their family members at risk, but are putting law enforcement officers at risk when they're called in 911 situations. That was a very smooth, sophisticated move on her part. And of course, she's saying it's not just about this provision of the congressional statute. There are a whole bunch of other ones. And I want you to issue a ruling that's going to, in effect, vacate those other judgments. And lower courts are going to go back and say, gee, if we've misunderstood the issues in section 922G or whatever, we have to think about the, the issues in section 922C, or maybe it's the other way around or whatever. But she's not, she's, she's won this case. And now she's, she's out to win it big. And finally, Maybe actually she's had three points that I have four. She did get counting in in a big way. She said actually 48 states. This is the exact opposite, you see, of Bruin, where there were 43 states actually on the gun side, um, actually 44, and, and six or seven on the other side. Here there are 48 states on the anti-gun side. And that makes this you know, a much easier case for the government. Frankly, Solicitor General Prelogger, that's why Roe was really a problem, because in Roe, you had 49 states actually on the government can do this, the regulation side, the anti-right to abortion side, on the facts of, of, of Roe. So she's doing a counting analysis here. She got that in, in the end, a very impressive close. Um, all those points. Well done. You know, here's what she didn't say. She didn't, say, she didn't get up there and say, Bruin is wrong. And yes. here are the 10 things that Bruin did wrong. Instead, yeah. she said, lower courts, you're misinterpreting Bruin. You're misapplying mm -hmm. Bruin. And yeah. trying to, so her, you know, so that, so that was interesting because I think you say Bruin went too far. 
And I um, agree with you. Bruin, if, if construed in a certain way, right. you know, and, and, but if construed in this narrow way, then it's just fine. And, and we didn't hear Justice Thomas's voice, but I think we heard, you know, just about all the others on the conservative side. We didn't hear Justice Kavanaugh. It's possible based on, and again, I haven't actually read the transcript. You have, you've listened to the whole or, or, oral argument. I wasn't counting, you know, many votes for Rahimi in any of that. Yeah, maybe, maybe Justice Thomas. Um, when we didn't hear he, his he voice. He tried but. to get into, well, we have, we have quotes from him, but I, we just didn't get there. It's, well, we have so much okay. time here. But the, he did talk about the, he, tried, he emphasized in his questioning that this was a civil rather than criminal procedure, proceeding. And uh, perhaps he, you know, he f- feels that you need to cr- have a criminal finding in, in order to. Uh, and, and, and maybe the best, right. ca- and if I were arguing to him on the other side, I would say maybe the best case that I have is the one that he himself decided for the court, the Kansas versus Hendricks case. It was five to four. That was about civil commitment, 1997. And he sided with the government in that case. Andy, I salute you. These clips were beautifully uh, selected to highlight the issues. Audience members, this is not easy to do, I can assure you, because I've tried to do it for other cases and, and failed. So thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure. I mean, it was, it, it's fun. And I think our audience really likes these episodes with the, where they hear that from the justices and get your commentary. So we'll try to do more as as we go through the, uh, you know, the oral argument season. Oh. And we will do more M-O-O-R-E, with oral argument soon enough. That's December 5th. Yes, and we'll be there, as you know. And you'll be there in the audience in the sense of of hearing our experience. So we're looking forward to that. We're going to try to get in the... uh, uh, guests on the question of the president uh, as as an officer on uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 3 sense, uh, before the oral argument. I think we've got a couple of weeks before then, so we'll try to get this in before then. Mm-hmm.